Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is a special live edition of Talking Politics coming from the Bristol Festival of Economics. We are going to be talking about the impact of digital technology on how we work, on how our economies are organised, but also, crucially, on democracy. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary for the next few months with an unimprovable offer. Get a year's subscription and a limited edition LRB tote bag for just £40 by using the URL lrb.me forward slash birthday. We've got a great panel to discuss this, the authors of two of the best recent books on these broad themes, Rana Faruha, whose book is called Don't Be Evil, The Case Against Big Tech, Carl Frey, whose book is called The Technology Trap, and also we're joined by Diane Coyle, Professor of Public Policy at Cambridge, but also the Director of the Bristol Festival of Economics. We're going to come on to some specific questions about some of the things that politicians have been saying both in this country and the United States about what we could do about the power of big tech and also some of the basic questions about infrastructure. We will get on to Labour's pitch to nationalise broadband. We'll probably come to that at the end. We want to start with some broad themes and run if we could start with you. And you and Carl both write about this in your books. So the politics of the last few years have been pretty fractious, very polarised. Everyone is aware that there is a rising tide of what's usually called populism. And it's blamed on the whole on globalisation. And when people look for the deeper cause, they tend to focus on trade and the effects of trade. But there is a rival story to go with that. If you look at the parts of the country, that, of the United States, of this country, that are sometimes described as left behind, that may not be the way to do it, but say the Rust Belt in the United States, the places that voted for Donald Trump, there is also a case for saying that the power of big tech is also behind this. Yeah. Do you want to make that case? Yeah. If you look statistically at the disruption in places like the Rust Belt, we know that in the last 40 years or so, globalization has decreased inequality as a planet. You know, I mean, uh, levels have come down, but within countries, and within most rich countries, there have been these pockets of pain and there's been increasing inequality. And that's what's really behind, I think, a large chunk of the populism that you see. A lot of new research in the US shows that we talk a tremendous amount in the US about the disruption and the movement of jobs to China, but part of what's happening is actually technological disruption as well. And that's very skills-based. So historically, if you look at um, the role of technology in the economy, it's always a net benefit, but only if education keeps up with the pace of technological change. And in parts of the US, and again, parts of the UK and much of the rich world, that link has been broken since the 1970s. I would also make one other point. When we talk about globalization since the 80s onward, we're really talking about a particular kind of globalization, a kind of a neoliberal idea about capital, goods, and labor being able to move wherever they want. The problem with that idea is that capital has always been able to move much more easily than goods, and certainly than labor. The big tech companies really kind of represent, I think, the apex of that trend. So if you think about money being able to move across borders, data can do that even more easily. So it's no accident 
that companies like Facebook, Google, Amazon, Apple, these are some of the biggest offshores of corporate wealth now. I mean, they really are flying kind of 35,000 feet above the problems of the nation state. They're sort of supranational, if you will. And I think that it may be that you're going to see uh, a backlash to that, a populist backlash to those companies in particular, kind of an Occupy Silicon Valley, perhaps. And Carl, within the technology story, again, there are two I don't know if they're rival accounts, but two ways you can talk about the impact of this technology on labor and on work. One of which is we are at the cusp of the automation revolution and we're starting to see some of those effects, jobs, human jobs being replaced by machines. The other is that what's so distinctive about this moment is the giant corporations, the biggest corporations in the world, the generators of huge amounts of wealth are not creating jobs. They're not job creating corporations. Those things are connected, but again, can we decide between them which one is driving this? Is it that Facebook doesn't employ anyone, or is it that the robots are coming? Well, one of my favorite lines from the book is that if you put one hand in the freezer and the other in the stove, you should be feeling quite comfortable on average. <laughs> but we know that that is not the case. And I think the same can be said about the American labor market. If you look at the Bay Area, if you look at DC, if you look at a city like New York or Boston, the labor market is actually doing pretty well because that is where most technology companies, where most professional services providers cluster. And, and you're absolutely right. Google, Facebook, Amazon are not creating that many jobs directly, but they're actually creating quite a few jobs indirectly because what happens when you create a skilled job in the Bay Area is that that person goes out in the local service economy goes to the hairdresser, goes grocery shopping, takes a taxi and so on and so forth. That creates on average five new jobs in the local service economy. And as a result of that, economic activity tends to be highly clustered in these places. Conversely, if you look at the ro use of robots, there are more robots in Michigan alone than in the entire American West. And one lost manufacturing job also means 1.6 lost jobs in the local service economy because those jobs also support other jobs. So it's having the opposite impact. And what we find in a recent study is that if you want to understand why Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, who used to be won by the Democratic candidate every election since 1992, all of a sudden ended up being won by Donald Trump, robots are clearly part of the reason. And we have seen nothing yet, right? This is just you know, routine, rule-based automation. But if we look at frontiers of technology, we know that automation or artificial intelligence can now perform much broader set of tasks, right? And the rise of China has already happened. Most people today work in non-traded sectors of the economy. They're actually relatively shielded from future globalization, but they are not shielded from automation. Uh, the job of cashier is likely to be displaced due to Amazon Go. You can't send that job to China. That needs to be f performed where the person is doing his grocery shopping. The same is true of taxi drivers, truck drivers, and bus drivers, and so on. So looking forward, it's pretty clear to me that automation is going to have much more pervasive effects on the labor market than globalization is. Well, it has been going on for a long time, of course. This started in the 1980s and the 1990s, so we've seen some of those waves already. It's not just about big tech. 
it's about automation in general. But I, I wouldn't divide it the way that you do, David, as between technology and globalization, because globalization couldn't happen without the communications technologies and the way it's reshaped logistics chains. That makes it quite hard to think about what to do about it, because if you want to somehow rebalance these trends that Carl was just describing, you've sort of got to unpick the way that so much of the economy operates now, and that's quite a daunting prospect. And you mentioned China, and, and Rana, at the beginning of your book, you describe the moment when Mark Zuckerberg is, I think, about to appear uh, before one of the bodies that has summoned him and someone spots his notes. And part of the case that he makes against the breakup of his baby, Facebook, is that the competition now with China, going beyond the, the old manufacturing competition, at the level of big tech, is with companies even bigger, yeah. even more monopolistic, even more embedded in their state, so his line is going to be, if you break up Facebook, we won't be able to compete with China. Yeah, and you say the, the counter-argument is, unless we break up Facebook, we won't be able to compete with China. Well, indeed. I mean, I have to say, I find it so cynical, that argument that the big tech executives use. For starters, Facebook has tried to be in China any number of times. China has its own, increasingly has its own sort of internet ecosystem and its own big tech players, uh, Alibaba, Baidu, Tencent, and so on. Google runs a research operation in China. You also hear folks from Google, Eric Schmidt and so on, saying, no, we're the national champions, you can't break us up. I mean, the fact is these are giant multinational firms that would be happy to go anywhere that they can make a large profit. Amazon, interestingly, uses the nationalism card mostly because it can't get into China. Alibaba is sort of its main competitor there, and so it's ring-fenced. So they are now trying to use their own monopoly power to get all government procurement. It's an interesting political moment because they're really playing this kind of nationalism card. But... Again, these are companies that will be happy to go to any country they can make a profit in. I do, however, think that we are moving towards what's been called a splinter net, where the U.S., Europe, and China, and some of the emerging markets that it may draw into its orbit will be going different directions in terms of the debate about the governance of the Internet, privacy standards, how digital trade may or may not be conducted. That's a big choice. I have to say, I've been in the UK now for the whole week doing book events and talks, and I'm so impressed because I think that the debate here is so much more nuanced and thoughtful than in the US. I mean, we seem to just throw up our hands and say, well, you know, not much we can do. All right, I'm back to Facebook. In China, meanwhile, there's a surveillance state that's exporting surveillance technology, which is a major human rights issue. I hope, my hope is that Europe will actually be able to, you know, lead the way here on a, a framework to make this a win-win situation. I like the way you elided the UK and Europe. I know, I shouldn't do that, but <laughs> we'll get to that. Do you, uh, and this relates I'm still hopeful. I'm sorry, I'm <laughs> showing oh, my oh, politics. I, I wouldn't be if I was you. <laughs> we'll come on to this because it relates to Carl's book, which tells the long history of this going back into the Industrial Revolution and the previous panics and also coming out of panic around automation governments get most spooked when they think that another government is going to beat them. And there is in the rhetoric of the US at the moment, I mean, this is what Zuckerberg is playing on, you know, trying to speak to the kind of Trumpian fear that the Chinese are about to eat America's lunch. And that the big Chinese tech firms, particularly in AI, may be starting to either out-compete or, crucially, out-research. Is that fear for real? I mean, it, it's easy to be cynical and to see it as a kind of manipulated yeah. security state thing, but that... 
I sense there's also genuine anxiety around do you, this. Do you want me to take this? Yeah, and then yeah. we'll come to Carl. Yeah. Yeah. So there's an interesting book that was done by a man named Kai-Fu Lee, who is a Chinese venture capitalist. It's called AI Superpowers. And he makes the argument that uh, pretty much the future of, of progress, of productivity, is going to depend on artificial intelligence. And a lot of business people would agree with that. In his thesis, AI is really dependent on how much data you can stuff into algorithms. So it's not about innovation, it's about data. Data ring fencing and gathering. And in that paradigm, you can make the argument that China does have an advantage because look, there's no privacy debate. I mean, the, the state monitors everything you say or do. There's actually a kind of a very weird black mirror-ish system of social credit where, you know, if you're sort of a right thinking person online, you may get a promotion or make it easier to get your mortgage. And if not, you may be penalized. So that's what's going down there. You can make the argument that that's better for the algorithms and that thus China will be in the lead not only economically but then geopolitically in the future. And that whole system, by the way, is being rolled out via the One Belt, One Road infrastructure plan. China wants to sort of recreate the old Silk Road going all the way into Europe. And indeed, countries like Italy are already on board with implementing some of the Chinese technology standards. Germany is taking some of the 5G standards from China. But I would make the counter argument. I've been covering business and, and the economy for almost 30 years now. If you look at when innovation happens in companies, it tends to happen when they're small. And in particular, it tends to happen before they go public. There's a lot of research to show that. I think that innovation happens when you have a more decentralized model. And indeed, something that came up again and again when I was researching my book, I would speak to small and mid-sized entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, academics that say, look, we have great ideas, we want to innovate, but we can't get into the ecosystem now because so much of it has been sort of eaten by the big players. I'm a little skeptical anyway about the argument that all you need is a lot more data because people generalize far too much about what the data is for, what context you use it in, what information you can get it out of. And increasingly people are thinking about algorithms that don't actually need that much data. Carl, are there parallels with 19th century geopolitical anxieties, Britain at the lead of a tech revolution, its primary fear being that someone else will get ahead in the tech game. So the fear that governments have is not what it's doing to the labour force, what it's doing to jobs. The thing that drives government anxiety is geopolitical competition. Is, is this a parallel to that story? Well, I do think it is instructive to go back in history and ask the question why the first industrial revolution happened in Europe. Because in a way, China is just about to go back to where they were for most of human history, the technology leader. And I think the reason that the first industrial revolution actually happened in Europe has to do with the fall of the Roman Empire. The fact that Europe became much more fragmented which made it much harder to restrict and restrain the adoption of new technologies and to hinder people that had crazy ideas that challenged the conventional wisdom. A lot of people actually moved between these places, but they couldn't do that in China. They had a much more centralized system. They had a civil service examination, which set essentially the gold standard for what people should learn and think. And it is certainly true that Chinese governments have been very technologically progressive over the past couple of decades. But that is mainly because of catch-up growth, that they have been very able to plan and adopt new technologies 
on a mass scale. It's very different if you're actually at the technological frontier. And as China is approaching the technological frontier, I would suspect that competition and openness is going to become increasingly important. And for those reasons, I also believe in a much more decentralized model. Um, and like Diane just said, yes, sort of huge data sets can help for certain applications like search, but that is not everything. And secondly, it is not at all clear whether the future of AI will depend on more computer power and larger data sets, or whether it would actually depend on understanding what is actually happening in the brain. Right now, we're just sort of fishing for correlations, but I think that actually we need to understand better how the human brain functions to be able to make further breakthroughs in artificial intelligence. The Industrial Revolution story that you tell, it's a relative to now, it's a slowish story. It's a multi-generation story. It takes a couple of generations. I mean, there are people whose whole lives are lived in the period where the destruction is happening and who themselves find that their way of life is destroyed without it being replaced by anything better. This is quicker. I don't think it's just sort of 21st century presentism to think that this is happening quicker. When you say the technological frontier, what kind of time frame are you thinking about for China? I mean, when, when and how is this collision coming? Because it's, it really matters. Are we talking 10 years or 50 years? Well, I think it depends on the industry you're looking at. So in AI, China has progressed quite far already. If you look at semiconductors or pharmaceuticals, I can't think of a single important drug that has been developed in China. So I think overall, China is still lagging behind. Yes, they're filing for a lot of patents, but patents today are more of a strategic tool than actually a reflection of technological progress and innovations. I would discount that quite significantly. What I do think, though, is that China has uh, only very recently begun to actually feel the pains of automation and jobs moving away from China. So manufacturing employment in China has already peaked four years ago. 12.5 million manufacturing jobs have been shredded since. And I think that as middle-income jobs dry up in China as well, attitudes towards technological progress could potentially shift there too and they could face a similar backlash that we're seeing in the West today. I agree with that, and I would also add, um, I think that the US has actually, if anything, sped up China's progress to creating its own ecosystem. Trump and the trade war over the last two years, it just couldn't have been more wrong-footed, not that the complaints weren't justified in some cases, and in fact, many of the complaints that the administration has put forward, not the most extreme ones, but, you know, IP uh, theft, the fact that China's sort of playing both sides of the table on the WTO rules, those were things that the Obama administration complained about. They're things that the Europeans complain about. If we had been smart about it, we would have gotten together with all the allies and said, all right, this is a new era. China, you're going to have to come to the table and we're going to renegotiate the rules of the road, particularly for digital trade, which is kind of the only thing that matters increasingly. I mean, if you look at trade in general, it's been flat in goods and services for a number of years, but it's multiple times up in the last decade in terms of digital trade. What I hear now is a lot of Chinese investors, a lot of folks in the tech ecosystem saying, you know what, we're going to go our own way. We know we're not going to be allowed to invest in the U.S. And that's going to speed up this sort of fractious period of disruption that 
I always think of Neil Ferguson's likening this period to, you know, the advent of the printing press, where, yeah, it's great in the end, but then, you know, you've got 200 years of religious wars in between that you have to deal with. Yeah, we probably haven't got 200 years. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's, not. it's also much harder than people think to just copy advanced ideas. It's one thing to steal the patent or, you know, but it's not like you're copying a design for a dress when you're trying to produce something that's at the technological frontier. There's a lot of what economists call tacit knowledge, sort of know-how, how do you make things work. So even with AI systems, it's not that you somehow feed a data set into a computer and it does it all itself. There's a real art to uh, tuning the system to make it deliver the kind of results that you want. And that's very hard to, to just imitate. Can we talk about some of the policy options facing governments in the West? Ron, in your book, you use a phrase that I hadn't seen before, which is the digital New Deal. Mm. I don't know if it's original to you. It may be. W we know. Googled it beforehand, <laughs> and we think it is. Really? Okay, I'll <laughs> so take credit So there you go, breaking news. Not? I think you came up with that <laughs> <Woo>. phrase. Uh, <laughs> most people are familiar with the Green New Deal, which has been yeah. adopted by many candidates in this country. The Labour Party have adopted it, but yeah. candidates for the Democratic presidential nomination. Tell us what the digital New Deal would be and what would it be trying to address? Well, really, you know, the starting point is the research that Carl's quoting about this sort of U-shaped job curve that's coming up where, you know, the famous example in the UK is WhatsApp that had a $19 billion market cap and 35 employees. So you've got this kind of new sort of company as we shift from a tangible economy to one that's based essentially on data and intellectual property. And you've got to fill that gap somehow. Otherwise, you have a real problem with growth in rich countries where it is 60 to 70 percent consumer spending still. So at some point, the math stops working if you don't have a middle class. So my thought would be that you could actually link together job creation and education around digital skills in a way that would actually be a kind of a new deal, but for the digital era. So, you know, in the Great Depression period, you had the government coming in and helping people to be employed to build infrastructure that needed to be built. That's sort of what the Green New Deal is about, too. With a digital New Deal, you could connect the dots, and this is already being done at a local level in the U.S., with vocational training, which we got rid of a lot of that in the 1970s, but things that connect particularly in socioeconomically beleaguered areas, folks that might come out and not be ready to do sort of middle-class work, connect those people with the companies that need work. One great example of this, and actually I'll, I'll be somewhat optimistic and give kudos to a tech company, IBM actually has an interesting school system called the P-TECH. It's what they call a six-in-four program. So instead of graduating with just a high school degree, you go for six years, graduate with an associate's degree, you learn a strong core curriculum, liberal arts, math, sciences, but you also learn the digital skills that you would need to go and be employed in a fifty or $60,000 a year job and you come out with two years of training. This is being implemented in 20 different states and actually eight different countries now within the state school system. So this is something that is accessible to a lot of people. In fact, my own son, who's in middle school, is applying to one of these programs, great, great high school program. This is just one example of how you could sort of start connecting the public sector, the private sector. It's sort of a Germanic way, I guess, of thinking of things. Carly, you sold on the Digital New Deal? Well, I think paradoxically, we also need a lot of physical infrastructure. And I think one of the key trends over the past three decades or so has been the clustering of technology jobs in cities with skilled populations. 
and that has driven up house prices in those prime locations because I mentioned earlier, a lot of in-person service type of jobs also needs to be provided where these people are. In the US in particular, but also in the UK, you have a lot of crazy zoning restrictions that make it very expensive to actually build where the new jobs are emerging. And what we need is a lot more housing in those places where the new type of jobs are actually being created. Because as it stands now, with house prices in those places going through the roof over the course of three decades now, the main beneficiaries of this has actually been owners of real estate. And if you look at Thomas Piketty's work, the entire upsurge in wealth inequality is almost entirely due to housing. So we need to build a lot more. I also think that we need to do more to try to connect declining and expanding places. So where I grew up in southern Sweden, Malmö was a city that specialized in building ships. And when the shipyard closed down in the early 1990s, the city was doing quite poorly for a long time. And I would say uh, actually only with the construction of the Öresund Bridge, which is not a crime scene, by the way, uh, despite what uh, you may have seen on television, it was actually helped revive the city because all of a sudden people could stay put in Malmö, where housing was cheap, commuting to Copenhagen, where there was an abundance of well-paying jobs. Most people would spend their money locally where they lived in Malmö, which gave a boost to the local service economy, and that created a virtuous cycle, uh, and it's now one of the most dynamic labor markets in Europe. I think more can be done along those lines. I'd add, um, less glamorously, trains and buses as well to get people in. And it's quite interesting that there's talk now of reversing the beaching cuts, which with hindsight looks like one of the worst policy decisions of the post-war era. It would be ironic if the digital New Deal took us back <laughs> to pre-beaching. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com So I'm going to offer you now some of the actual pitches that politicians are making in this area because it is notable that in the current election cycle in the UK and the US for the first time, this is, I mean, it's not at the top, certainly in this country, I think it's not at the top of the agenda yet, but some serious radical ideas about how you might think about the coming automation revolution, the breakup of big tech, these things are really on the agenda. So I've got three, we'll do one Andrew Yang, one Elizabeth Warren, one I don't want to call it Jeremy Corbyn, I think it's John McDonnell, but one or the other. So Andrew Yang, it's a UBI offer, it's sort of universal ultra basic income, it's pretty small amount, but in some ways the innovation is to pay for it with a consumption tax based on production that is driven by automation, so as it were it'll tax things that are produced by robots. Are you sold? I'm not a big fan of UBI. And I'll tell you why. I think that work really matters. And I think that how you, I mean, I'm, I'm all for a digital dividend, which is a, a different. Uh, so you could I, have the tax, but for something else. Yes, exactly. It's a different way of thinking about it. California, for example, just as a small segue, is thinking about the fact that our data, the data that is harvested by all these companies in the surveillance capitalism, which is a Shoshana Zuboff term that they conduct where they 
track you around the internet, see what you're doing, build a profile, sell targeted advertising against you. That's your data that's being harvested. So that's, that's a resource. And I think thinking about that as a resource that could then be taxed in some way, there could be a dividend payment, there might be a data sovereign wealth fund that you could use to buffer these social and economic changes that we're talking about. That makes much more sense to me than UBI. I don't think Silicon Valley should be thinking of itself as giving anybody a handout because uh, I'll quote another academic, Mariana Mazzucato, who often makes the point that this stuff was all taxpayer funded. The internet, GPS, touchscreen technology, we all paid for this. So the idea that they are somehow the great innovators giving back everybody else money, I don't like that paradigm. So I'd add that UBI is actually the ultimate neoliberal policy and there's a reason people like Peter Thiel think it's such a good idea because it's giving money to individuals. You can't buy the bus service or the good public schools yeah, with your yeah, universal yeah. basic income, That's especially right. if it's low. That actually, you know, in the US right now, the only in kinds of inflation that even exist, and this is th the same way in most of Europe, are housing, education, and in the US, healthcare. So the things that make you middle class are getting exponentially more expensive. There's deflation in everything else, including wages. Carl, Andrew Yang, he is, I mean, he's probably not gonna win the nomination, although he's not out of it, and you never know, right? Yeah. But he, I mean, he won't get the nomination. No, he won't get the nomination. He could be a veep. Uh, okay, but he is absolutely making automation the centerpiece of his campaign and saying essentially what you were saying, which is that we're not taking it nearly seriously enough we're just at the beginning of something which is going to be much more dramatically destabilizing than we've taken account of. And this is our chance to start talking about it. So in those terms, presumably he is a candidate who's speaking a kind of language that you recognize. Well, I think it's good that he's pushing the issue, but I don't think that UBI is the solution either for the simple reason. So economists tend to think that the purpose of production is consumption, but as Rana just mentioned, we know from a wide range of studies that people actually put a lot of meaning to their jobs and their work. And UBI is not going to solve that. And I don't think that the trouble is that you know people are not fearing well as consumers. We have greater consumer variety today than we had 30 years ago. The problem is that a particular group in the labor market, and that is primarily prime-aged men, with no more than a high school degree, who would have taken up jobs in factories before the robot revolution. They are faring very badly in this economy. And we need to try to help them adjust. We need to try to help them move to places where new jobs are being created. We need to equip them with the right skills. And UBI is not a solution to any of those challenges. Is it possible that, because in the same way you can't separate out technology and globalization, in this agenda, the Green New Deal and some of these things are going to be related in various ways. I mean, there is going to be at least potentially a winning candidate, if Trump loses, in the forthcoming presidential election who will have a Green New Deal, if not a Digital New Deal platform. And could some of that move in this direction? I think they're very connected. I've actually been involved in some of the policy conversations around this. You know, the idea of housing, green, high-tech, high-growth, finding jobs for millennials that are underemployed. I mean, all these things are, are connected. And I think that there's a really smart and elegant ecosystem policy-wise that could be built from that. So someone who could win the nomination is Elizabeth Warren. 
looks a little bit less likely than it did when we last talked about her on our podcast when she was yeah, the hot favourite. It's amazing that healthcare yeah. tanks. Ever, it's so it makes me so angry. I had two children very happily on the NHS, and I tell everyone that in America. I'm like, you have no idea how bad our system is until you come to Europe. It's weird. As soon as people actually start to talk about it, rather than just gesture towards it, it seems to kill their campaigns. Yeah, anyway, yeah. she's also very clearly staked her position around breaking up big tech mm. and saying particularly that what she would do is use the power of the federal government to investigate unfair monopolies around mergers and acquisitions. So she said, if you look at her, it's not called a manifesto, is it? But you look at her program, her platform, it very explicitly says that this anti-competitive behavior, these tech giants have been able to buy up their rivals and then produce these even more monstrous entities where Facebook also is Instagram and WhatsApp and so on. And she would come for that and she would break it apart. And she would also break apart these big tech firms by function to make sure that they can't monopolize across the whole piece. How's that one for you as a electoral pitch? Are, um, you, are you sold? So break up big tech is a bit more of a slogan than a solution. And what she's trying to touch on are two, two or three different interesting policy ideas. The idea of looking post facto at some of the mergers that have been done is I think valid and we should do it, but the deeper issue at stake is really the political economy and how we think of it. So in the US from the 1980s onward, antitrust has functioned on the idea that as long as consumer prices were going down, there was no problem. So that's why you can have a company like Amazon just be enormous and go in and disrupt entire industries like you know the supermarket industry overnight, they change it that's considered fine theoretically because they're bringing prices down. But I think that in this transition to an intangible economy, that Chicago school thinking is really no longer valid because you're not transacting in dollars or in sterling, you're transacting in data, which by the way is completely opaque. Um, and, and I think that we don't really have a proper um, functioning marketplace right now because when we give our data, we, we're not even giving it, it's just being harvested usually our data, we don't know what we're getting in return. We don't understand what the value is. So there are a lot of people, and Elizabeth doesn't have really deep thinking around this, but some people that support her do, that want to think about power in the way that we thought about that in the 19th century with railroads. And so I think that one thing you may see coming down the pike in terms of splitting up based on function is a sort of a 19th century model where it used to be that if you were a railroad baron, you could own all the tracks and you could own the cars on the tracks and you could own what went in the cars, like grain or coal or whatever it was. And then eventually it was just clear that that was a zero sum game and the network, the railroad network was split away from commerce. To me, that feels very sensible to look at a company like Amazon and say, okay, you can be the platform for e-commerce, but you can't in some black box direct us to the products and services that are most profitable you, to you. You have to allow that commerce ecosystem to be more competitive. So this is an area where European authorities and UK authorities have been ahead of the Americans in terms of enforcing actions against the big tech companies. And it's already underway in this country, in the UK, that the Competition Authority is investigating the digital advertising market and looking at how that operates. And there are proposals to make access to data more available from the big tech companies to make sure that they are not able to exploit their suppliers. They've got to set fair terms and conditions and so on. So um, there are lots of really good ideas that, that fall short of break up the companies, which is a really kind of slow and legally tortuous way to get some of the results that we want to get. 
Carl, what's your take on the, the big breakup agenda? I think we need to th rethink the internet more fundamentally, and I think Tim Berners-Lee has a very interesting project called Solid, which is aiming to do exactly that. So the idea here is essentially that instead of having your data stored at the service of Facebook, Amazon, and Google, you become the owners of your own data. You store it. You decide which apps you wanted to interact with, whether you want to keep it private, whether you want to sell it. I think that would uh, do a lot to increase competition, to give people a stake in the d more increasingly data-driven economy, and would also very much undermine these companies and uh, force them to conceive new business models. So on this podcast, we try and avoid the paranoid style, but it's sometimes hard. So I often have been wondering, if Elizabeth Warren gets closer to the White House, what will big tech do to stop her? Oh because, boy, I mean, the, the other thing is that the direct confrontation is going to produce direct resistance. So the paranoid interpretation is that she already seems to be struggling. If Pete Buttigieg is rising for reasons I'm not sure about. Elizabeth Warren seems to be going down. Has the secret fight back already started? Because these companies are now the biggest lobbyists, and also yeah. they have the most sophisticated techniques, frankly, and this sounds really paranoid, for undermining political campaigns. And Elizabeth Warren is just a direct threat to these companies. So they're going to do something. Have they already started? Um, they absolutely have. I mean, okay, so I'm not being paranoid. No, no. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I actually thought I was being a bit paranoid. And I mean, frankly, 30 years covering global business will make you paranoid. But um, <laughs> that sounds really Marxist, doesn't it? I hope I can keep my job at the FT after this panel. But, um, <laughs> you know, I covered Wall Street. And I can tell you that as sharp-elbowed as, you know, big finances or big pharma, big tech is diabolical in terms of just the, the amount of spending. I mean, Google and Amazon are now the absolute biggest corporate lobbyists in Washington. They are constantly flying over to Brussels as well. And the tone is, oh, you Europeans, you, don't, you haven't created your own giants. You, you know, we're going to tell you how it's done. In fact, there was actually an interesting book that NYU academic Thomas Philippon did recently that by many measures says European markets are more competitive because they're more diverse, because there's not such a concentration of power in tech. Putting that aside, one of the most sophisticated things that the big tech firms have done to kind of shift and, and create cognitive capture is to buy out academic research in this area. So I was stunned. I mean, we have money politics in the US that is just like nowhere else. You read what seems to be you know, basic academic research on key topics, privacy and, and antitrust theory. You get to the very bottom and you find out that the, the folks doing it are paid consultants for Google or that their entire chair is endowed by Apple or, you know, I mean, it could go on and on. So that kind of cognitive capture is right. And, you know, Mark Zuckerberg said he views Elizabeth Warren as an existential threat to Facebook. He doesn't understand the half of it because, yeah, she would want to break him up, but she's actually going deeper and she's saying she wants to stop the revolving door between policymaking and corporations. She wants to put limits on, you know, you can't go work at Facebook for five years after you leave a regulatory position like, you know, is happening right now. So that's a big deal. Okay, we're going to come on in a second to questions from the audience. I want to do one last one. I'll start with Diane, which is the Labour Party policy to nationalise broadband and make it free. Um, it's captured a lot of attention. It's been in, the most in interesting thing in the campaign so far. Yeah, in polling and focus groups, the response of voters tends to be, 
whether they think it's a good or bad idea, they don't think it's going to happen, <laughs> which is one of the problems with this really ambitious policy from parties that are in some trouble in the polls. It's quite hard to get people to take it seriously. But if we did take it seriously, is it a good idea? So I think part of it is a good idea and part of it is absolutely bonkers. The bit that's the good idea is that um, open reach, it's perfectly sensible to think about having open reach in national ownership. But you want to do so in a way that carries on enabling investment in fibre broadband. It's been owned by BT as a privatised company and we are way behind other nations in that kind of investment. And it's partly because the terms and conditions that BT has set for others to invest and use the backbone network have been too onerous. So that policy has kept us behind. It isn't mad to think about, is there a better way of owning and managing and regulating the basic network? The mad bit is making it free. And people say to me, well, you know, the roads are free. We pay for them through our taxes and um, they're publicly owned. So what's the difference? The difference is that we want to make sure that we still get a lot more investment. Private sector competitors to BT are doing a lot of investment in fibre. You make it free, you kill all of that. If you make it free too, uh, so the uh, open reach itself has no revenues, then their investment in turn is going to depend on handouts from the Treasury. And one of the problems with the old nationalised industries was that the budget scissors always cut and they underinvested too. So I think it's not a stupid idea. It's worth thinking about. Financially, I think it's not going to happen, never mind the politics of it, because it would be very costly, not least because of the pension liabilities. But we do not have a good system for getting that investment in, in fibre broadband. And do you think the bonkers bit was added on to the same bit because it was felt that that would make it more comprehensible? I mean, in a well, sense, that and if you say, look, here is a public service, we're going to give it to you free, that makes sense as an electoral pitch, whereas the sensible bit is somewhat more difficult to explain. I suppose, I mean, it's retail politics, isn't it? That, you know, you something, something that people idea love the free idea. is going to go down really well, just as, you know, have your council house for almost free went down very well. Is it, is it possible to imagine a US politician? saying something like that? We're going to nationalize broadband and, and make it free? Well, it's interesting. You know, in the U.S., um, a nationalized 5G plan was actually floated briefly by the Trump administration and... Those notorious Marxists. Those notorious <laughs> Marxists. I mean, this, well, this just shows you how, what an odd moment of change we're in and how strange the bedfellows are Who sometimes. knew the FT and the Trump administration yeah, yeah, were Marxists? Ex exactly, exactly. Um, but it was, that was more about national security, right? And interestingly, this was never confirmed, but some people in Washington think that there was a lot of Google consultation that was taken on that plan because um, I, I won't get into details, but there, that's that's the rumor. Actually, you know, we have a major issue in the U.S. just because of the nature of the country with rural broadband, and this this plays into political issues right now because you know broadband is just it, it's like water these days you've got to have it to be able to work but there are huge swaths of the country like where I grew up in in Indiana which is in the middle of the country it's a red state it's basically you know giant cornfields um, my parents cannot get broadband people can't work this way so unfortunately how do you incentivize investment it's about the investment question and it's a deep question because Google, you know, professed that they wanted to help solve the rural broadband problem. They went in for a couple of years, figured out it wasn't profitable, and then stopped doing it. So I'm sympathetic to the idea of a national broadband plan. And that, that, that uh, universal coverage will always need public subsidy. So how do you fund that and how, uh, who do you get to do that investment is a key question everywhere. 
Great, so we have a giant focus group here. If anyone wants to express a view about any of those policy ideas or ask a question about anything that we have or haven't discussed, now is your chance. We've got a couple of mics. Hi, thanks. I love the podcast. Long-time listener, first-time questioner. Um, That's a so good opening to any question. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you mentioned this t Tim Berners-Lee project where you would have a sort of central depository for your data and you would own that and you could potentially then sell that. Has there, any, has there been any research on how much my data might be worth, the typical user's data might be worth? Because that sounds like a good freebie that you could offer to the electorate, which would actually be a market-based one. So could appeal to market-type people as well. Not that I'm aware of, and I think most data individually is not worth that much. So I think the main selling proposition of that project is that you retain the freedom to decide how your data is being used. You can decide whether to keep it private, you can decide which apps you wanted to interact with, and so on and so forth. So I don't entirely agree with you about that model, actually. Uh, there has been some research. In fact, there's a calculator on the FT website where you can plug in your information. My data turns out to be worth 26 cents. So it's not going to make any of us rich. What, in total? In total, yeah. <laughs> I didn't say that I was a millionaire or had a yacht, and maybe it would have gone up a little bit if I'd answered untruthfully. But the trouble with creating individual data silos is that we create positive value for each other as well in our data. And the example I've been using is that my blood pressure numbers, I want to keep it private what they are, but they don't mean anything to me unless I know what the population averages are. So I think we need just quite a nuanced discussion about privacy for certain kinds of data, but how do we then pool the kinds that are going to be useful for other people? I agree with that, and there's actually a real-world example out there right now in Toronto. Google has a project in Toronto called the Sidewalks Lab project, and they're building a smart city on 12 acres of the Toronto waterfront. The idea is to put sensors everywhere and observe traffic patterns and energy usage and create efficiencies. Well, until quite recently, when the government of Toronto pushed back, Google was going to own all that data. They would share it, but they would own it, and only they would be able to see it and really reap that value. The government of Toronto finally got a clue and th said, you know what, we're going to put this in a data bank, a public data bank, for a couple of reasons. One, for the very point that you mentioned, there may be some kinds of data that we decide as a government, as a public, we want to share, other kinds we don't. We also want to make sure that not just one company gets access to that, but that small and mid-sized local players can get access. It's that pooling that I think is important. And I think that data bank model that would be controlled by governments, uh, democratically elected officials, you know, help figure out what should be public, what should be private, makes a lot of sense. Because as you say, it's difficult to pull out individual value of data. It's really about the layering that makes it valuable. Andrew Yang often talks about how successful UBI has been in Alaska. So what is different between Alaska and the rest of the US in terms of like, what the effects of UBI would be? Uh, Alaska is an interesting case study. Alaska also had a, a sovereign wealth fund because it's an oil-rich state. And to me, that's what's more interesting, that analogy between um, you know, oil as a resource, data as a resource, saying that, all right, whoever's harvesting it has to give some back. In, you know, maybe you give it in a check. I personally would prefer it to be in a, in a fund that could be deployed on um, things like infrastructure, et cetera. I don't know what Yang is saying has been so successful in Alaska, but the idea of wealth sharing is, I think, the, the key underlying point here. I mean, do you think that the idea of a sovereign wealth fund, which we associate not, you know, not just with oil-rich states, well, this is another oil-rich state, but places like Norway and so on. Well, that's oil, it, too. I know it's oil, too, but it doesn't 
seem to get much traction and yet I think it's if the United to. States had a sovereign wealth fund, yeah. it could have a lot of wealth in it. Yeah, it could. And actually, there's been some numbers crunched about data, just aggregate data. There was um, a nonprofit in America that made a cons very conservative estimate of the value of targeted advertising on, say, a Google or a Facebook versus the larger advertising pie. And they found that there was like a 50% premium. So it's 50% more valuable to be able to target you digitally, which equates to a something like a hundred billion dollar yearly market. It's quite large and that's not even calculating, you know, healthcare, finance, all the different areas that are in which data is being harvested. So yeah, it's a big number. The real value it seems to me is the ability to do things that I want to do more conveniently. So uh, take an example like CityMapper, which aggregates certain kinds of transport data. It's a fantastic service. And so the real value is things that are being hoarded by these big companies that can't get joined up and other people can't make terrific services out of them. And I would much rather think of it in terms of those opportunities than in, you know, it's 26 cents for me and $100 billion for Apple. You know, that's actually an important point, too, because some of this transition that we're going through right now, there are these many wonderful things that could happen, but it could also really split us. You know, we think we're polarized now, but the, the digital model could make us polarized at an individual level. So for example, in insurance, this is something I've become quite worried about. Some insurance companies are putting sensors in people's homes or cars, and you can then see, all right, is someone smoking in the house? Then you get marked down, you're a fire hazard. Are you cleaning the ice off your steps? No one's gonna trip. Okay, you get maybe a discount on your insurance. But what that does is it disrupts the entire collective risk pooling model of insurance. So you can very easily imagine how there could suddenly be an elite up here and then a group of uninsurable people down there. And then who is going to take up that slack? The public sector, some kind of new junk bond market for insurance? That's, that's very disturbing. I it think. also makes China seem a whole lot less dystopian, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, and Rana, I was really struck in your book that we associate the word micro-targeting now with kind of Cambridge Analytica and messing with elections. And that may or may not be overblown. My feeling is, in some sense, it is overblown. It's, it's, there's a lot of targeting, but it's not that micro, to be honest. The real anxiety about micro-targeting should be in the area you've just described. That's where it's really happening. That's where the disaggregation is really happening. The electorate, you know, Dominic Cummings, the, the master of micro-targeting, but in the referendum, he put a message about the NHS on the side of a bus. That's not micro-targeting. Right, but right. What you're describing is micro-targeting. It is, and it's you know it's happening out there now. Algo racism is a real thing. You know, this has been documented where we all see to a certain extent a different internet when you search for one term, you may get advertisements for luxury hotels, someone else may get an advertisement for a predatory loan based on what the algorithm knows about them. In the Alaska case, I can't remember this, but isn't it true that Sarah Palin was the originator? Oh gosh, I don't know. That would so be that's kind of wrong, that's we will cut it from the podcast. Odd, odd belt but if it's right, category. that other notorious Marxist. <laughs> uh, UBI is a weird thing. It does weird things to our politics. Another question. Perhaps the panel can uh, elaborate on this. It seems as us as taxpayers seem to finance fundamental science at universities, state universities, and then we take all the risks, and then whatever we, we find, new knowledge, we just seem to give it away for free to private sector, in which they capitalize and make huge profits, and they charge us, and then they tell us that we can't have 5G or 4G, basic services. 
it seems to me that we're not we're just giving away these uh, free services and intellectual property, which we could be actually collecting a return on that. Well, I think it is right that government should invest in basic research for which there is no market, and we will benefit from the spillovers associated with that. Businesses can appropriate some of those returns if they build you know, follow-up innovation on that for which they are granted a patent, for example. I personally think that we need to look into our intellectual property laws. In my view, there's no reason why we should have you know, patents being granted for 20 years when product life cycles are three years, and that's where I would start. I think the, the bit of the equation that doesn't work for me is that the companies that make very large profits out of innovations, you know, if I were clever enough, I'd be making a large profit out of innovations too, but I'm not. They're just not paying taxes that then feed back into the, vir into the virtuous circle. So I think, I think the tax base is the real issue. I would agree with that. And, you know, one of the, another one of my pet peeves is when the CEOs of these companies say, well, if only there were a better educational system, if we had reform and this and that's like, well, okay, how are we going to pay for it? You, you've put all the money in the Netherlands. Time for one more quick question. Don't you think it's a little bit ancient to be talking about oil when <coughs> you have hydrogen fuel cells in Berkeley buses? <laughs> um, I wish. I mean, it's why still, we, why it's still the major... Why don't we see what a hydrogen fuel cell looks like? Why don't we look into that? Why are we still into oil? Having millions of millenniums of oil taken out of the earth, we're going to collapse. I think that's another panel. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but these, yeah, I mean, it shows what we were saying, the Green New Deal, the Digital New Deal connect. Well, the real link I would make between the digital and the green is that digital uh, companies are real energy eaters. And somebody needs to be looking... Actually, that's a great point. Somebody yeah. needs to be looking really urgently about how to make digital industries less energy intensive. The amount of uh, energy that data centers eat is just extraordinary. And they're putting them on glaciers and burying them in the ocean to try to make them more fuel efficient. True. Huge, hugely important point. And, and things like blockchain technology, which is often held up as this great new wonderful thing. But at the moment, what it is, is a giant consumer of energy. Super inefficient. To make one more link, so the UBI in Alaska that Andrew Yang mentioned is directly linked to the oil price. So uh, that's not how we want to design a UBI. Great. We will put out the link to the episode that we recorded a few months ago with Shoshana Zuboff, where we discussed surveillance capitalism, which relates to what we were talking about here. We will also tweet the links to the excellent books that we've been talking about. Next episode of Talking Politics, which will go out in our usual slot, will be a discussion about the UK general election and about what Facebook and other platforms are doing or not doing and whether we really know how the campaign is currently going because we learnt last time that maybe we don't. That will be more specific to the UK. This has been about the fate of the world. Thank you very much to our panel. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Great stuff. Yes.